So at this time, I want you to hear the reading of God's word as we begin a new series this morning in the book of Jonah. So this morning, um, hear from Jonah chapter one. Good morning. So reading from Jonah chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tashish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Well, this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God bless the reading of his holy word. Thank you, Donna. I'd like to give you just a moment to reflect on what was just read. What is, what's your first connection to the first chapter of Jonah? How do you relate with the opening story of the four chapters of Jonah that you just heard the introduction to? (coughs) For the next 11 Sundays, we're gonna be focusing on Jonah. Um, Jonah's not a long story, but we're gonna take it slow and focus bit by bit. We're gonna focus quite a bit on the first chapters. The first several weeks will just be on the chapter we just had read. We'll be going one or two verses at a time um, until later in the story. But how do you find your life connecting with the story of Jonah this morning? I'm assuming you're not necessarily connecting with the part where he gets swallowed by a huge fish. However, as I was remembering this week, there actually was a story two years ago in Cape Cod of a man getting swallowed by a great fish. Do anybody recall this story? I won't go into it too detailed, but June 11th, 2021, NBC Boston reports, oh my God, I'm in the mouth of a whale what it's like being swallowed by a humpback. It's a story of a, of a fisherman off Cape Cod who, a lobster fisherman, Michael Packard, who found himself when he was diving, swallowed by a whale. Now there's been some skepticism around the story, just like there's skepticism by some people around, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Is that really possible? And I don't know the answer to either one of those questions. We are trusting in the validity of both storytellers, both the story of Michael Packard and his medical team, and we're trusting in the authority of God who gives us the story of Jonah through the prophet who recalls a story of Jonah being in the mouth and the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. And so I want to urge us as we walk into the story of Jonah, which is a a story that many or most of us already know because it's a really great story to tell children in children's Sunday school and church. Most of us know this story, but are pretty focused on on the whale or the fish part of the story. And while we are going to focus on that when we get there, it's not the primary focus of the book of Jonah. There are so many spoken purposes for the book of Jonah that God has in store for us as a church. And that's what we're gonna focus on. The soul of a person is at stake in the book of Jonah. And the scope from a flourishing life on one end to a floundering life on another end, pun intended. Why do we flounder as people? Why do we flourish as people? 
And how can this story of an ancient prophet, an ancient disobedient prophet, teach us for the next 11 weeks about how God's grace changes us from floundering to flourishing? And so as I use those two words, which I've said are, are intentionally chosen, floundering and flourishing, let me just tell you what I mean by those for a second. Flourishing, as defined, means to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way especially as a result of a particularly favorable environment. So to flourish means that you are taken from one good state to an even better, very good state, particularly because you've been placed in a favorable environment for growth, vigorous growth, healthy growth. Floundering, on the other hand, means to struggle or stagger helplessly or clumsily in water or mud, for instance. This could be mentally, this could be in terms of confusion, this could just be as a result of serious difficulty. I just think in life, many of us are so aware of our shortcomings, of things that can lead us into deep despair, of the limitations that we discover about ourselves in life. And sometimes we get to the place where we actually give up on even the possibility of a flourishing life or a life of, of vigorous growth. And that can also lead us to despair. So we're kind of surrounded by despair. <laughs> despair on the sense of like, we know how limited we are and how we have shortcomings. And many of us have gone through intense experiences in life of floundering where you feel like, you know, you're the, you're the duck that's stuck in the mud and you can't get yourself out of it or you're sinking in the water. And on the other hand, it's like, I want to flourish, but I just, I don't even know if that's possible anymore. And so what hope do we have? Fortunately for us, the book of Jonah gives us great hope and even better news for us, the great hope is not found in the person Jonah. Jonah, on the contrary, gives us a pretty negative example to follow. The point of the book of Jonah is not to be like Jonah. The point of the book of Jonah is to look at the God who is behind the scenes, pursuing Jonah out of his grace and mercy. Where is his grace and goodness found? Christ alone. Christ alone. We sang that earlier. So Jonah shows us a sinful, flawed character that we can relate to. And a God who is present and active and caring for us. And it shows us the power and presence of the grace of God in an evil world. So this morning, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna use verses one and two. We're just gonna look at the first two verses, which are introduction verses. That'll then, you'll see the rest of these themes that I talk about this morning flare up for the next several Sundays as we learn more. And so this morning, I'm gonna talk about God, evil, and Jonah. And so the title of the sermon is, the story of God and evil, which Jonah really, the, the, the book of Jonah displays for us pretty clearly. So first I wanna look at God. God is the God who pursues humanity. Now the word of the Lord came, just stop there for a second. The word of the, of the Lord came he initiated interaction with Jonah, the prophet. 
God pursued humanity from the very beginning. So put Jonah to the side for a second. The very beginning of the Bible, God pursues humanity by even creating us. He created humanity out of his image by speaking his word. He created the world beautiful to naturally flourish when operating in obedience to his good design. And he chose to have relationship with humanity from the beginning. He chose to place us in his good world, to enjoy its beauty, to enjoy a flourishing environment where we can grow. God placed us in a great environment to thrive and to flourish. And yet, even after humanity sinned, Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, immediately from that point, this is one of the core theological truths that we affirm as Christians, is that God did not give up on humanity at that moment, but he walked in the garden and he called out to Adam and Eve when they were hiding from him and he pursued them out of his love and grace. Even after we sinned, God came after us on a rescue mission for humanity and creation. He did not want us to flounder ultimately, but he came to redeem and to reconcile us so that flourishing still remained a possibility. And you're allowed to say amen, Mike. You can keep doing it. (laughs) Just calling you out. I appreciate it. Flourishing. We're creating an environment for growth here. Those are encouraged. Verbal feedback. God has a commitment of love to creation when it's floundering. And again, I think as we look around our world today, we can see floundering happening, whether it's in your personal life or in in the wider world. And in the story of Jonah, you get all these examples of floundering. You see the creation, which is, you know, this giant storm that's happening. You see Jonah himself. You see sailors who are worshiping other gods who are now inserted into the story. You see the city of Nineveh. You see even cattle is mentioned later as being part of God's redemption plan. All of creation. You know, there's a a famous parable, two parables in Luke 15 that Jesus talks about back to back, talking about God's pursuit of humanity. And the first story is the story of a hundred sheep a shepherd with a hundred sheep out in open pasture. And he says, one of them wandered away and got lost. 99%, that's still pretty good. Like just stay with the 99. But the God that we serve and the God that we worship pursues the one lost sheep because of the great value the one sheep has to the hundred. And so it tells the story of the parable of the shepherd going after the one lost sheep and bringing it back. And that's God's pursuit of us. God pursues the one and leaves the 99. And then that's backed up right after that story with the story of the prodigal son, which is the story of a father and two sons. One son takes his inheritance, runs away and squanders it. A life of reckless living, it says. And yet the son comes to his senses, it says, when he's at his very bottom, when he's literally in the mud, floundering, eating the food that pigs eat, floundering in the mud, comes back to home and the father pursues the son, runs out to meet him in the open field and embraces him and throws a party for the returning son. God pursues us in our floundering, in our lostness. God initiates change with his word. So that's what we see right from the beginning of Jonah. God came to Jonah. We're gonna learn more about Jonah in just a moment, but God pursues us. 
verse two, it says, after, after God's word came to Jonah, he gives direction. So God pursues and then he directs. He says, arise, so basically get up, go and call out against the evil that's in Nineveh. So God invites us into his plan, into his purposes in life by giving us clear directives in life. He not only calls out to us, but then he actually, he gives the directions to us. God comes to us not just to change our heart, but also to mobilize our feet and our hands as well. You know, that's because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, but he is the way. He came to show us the way, the way to all things. And then the next part of chapter two, it says, and call out against the evil that has come up before me. So God pursues, God directs, and God opposes evil. So if you're living in an evil world, you all are, and you recognize the evil in the world, I'm sure you do. God is not okay with the evil that's in the world. God's not just passively allowing it to happen just to kind of experiment with us. And like, oh, let's see what happens when this evil encounters us. On the contrary, God calls out against evil. God is diametrically opposed, completely opposed to evil. He did not invite it into his creation. He does not tolerate it to continue and he will not allow it to win. He has a way of eradicating evil forever and it's through Jonah. It's through Stephen, it's through you. God invites us to be part of eradicating evil through bringing truth into our world. God opposes evil like water opposes fire. So the summary of that point is just that God is active in the world. Sometimes we may think that there's a passive component to God, but God created the world good and beautiful. And when evil came in and permeated all of creation, God did not end creation there, but instead, like we said, he began his rescue mission. And he ultimately brought Jesus to finish evil and death forever by delivering a death blow to death itself through the death of Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, that was checkmate for Satan and evil forever. And so God is active in the world today through empowering believers like you and me and churches like us with the Holy Spirit to do his kingdom building redemptive work. And even through non-Christians, God also does beautiful work. Breadcrumbs that lead to truth. Common grace things like creating medicines, like working for justice, like initiating creation care. God even is so gracious to use those who are not even followers of him yet to help the world continue in this flourishing process. And so God is coming again to establish a new heavens and a new earth forever with no possibility for evil again. So that's who God is that we know from the beginning of Jonah. That's the character of God that's gonna trace us through these four chapters. Now, evil, because evil is mentioned here right at the beginning and evil is another theme that continues through the book of Jonah as well comes up nine times, I think, in the book. And it's the Hebrew word ra. And it can be translated different ways in our English uh, versions. So what is this ra or evil that comes up in the book of Jonah? 
just to summarize it most easily for us, evil is the opposite of good. It's the opposite of anything good. So as I looked into this Hebrew word a little bit more, I discovered that um, in English, we kind of have, well, we definitely have two words for bad and for evil. So anything that is non-good, we can use two words for it, at least two words, bad and evil. But the Hebrew word ra actually contains both of those realities in one word, bad and evil. And so anything that is opposite of the life that God gives is ra or evil. And so Deuteronomy, 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, gives us kind of a nice black and white verse in the Old Testament of how God views evil. And he says this, I have set before you today life and good on one hand, death and evil on the other hand. So there are these two realities that live into life. There's life and good, again, the goodness of God, God's design for the world, and then evil and death. All these things are captured in this word, ra. The presence of non-goodness, the absence of God's goodness is evil. And so when we look at the city of Nineveh, which is what we're gonna bring up now, this ancient city, this capital city of the evil empire that was known as Assyria at the time, which did horrendous things across the region. What we see there is the presence of evil, which another way you could say it is the presence of, or the absence of the goodness of God in their midst, or the presence of non-goodness. The reason that Nineveh was evil was because they did not have the goodness of God delivered to them. And that's why God says, go. That's the purpose of him going. But Nineveh, just to give you a, just a little bit of background, because Nineveh is the ultimate goal of this whole book. It becomes one of the central characters. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which just less than 100 years later after the writing of Jonah would actually invade the nation of Israel, take them captive, send them off into exile, burn down many of their buildings and commit horrendous war atrocities against Jonah's people. That's what's coming down the road after the book of Jonah. And yet God still wants to send Jonah to deliver his grace and his message to them. It was this nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach. And you know, it's interesting um, there's, there's other prophets in the Old Testament that actually speak about Nineveh's impending doom and how God will one day destroy the city for their evil. So the prophet Nahum, for instance, speaks out about Nineveh and says, because of their evil, they will be destroyed. And so Nineveh is experiencing in the present day of Jonah what life is like apart from God, apart from his goodness being felt in their city. They're experiencing the sad reality of a life lived apart from God, which is not all that different than what eternal hell is gonna be like. They were experiencing a, a, a version of that on earth, what it's like to live apart from the presence of God. 
They're actually, in many ways, as the help of someone this week helped me, they are actually, in some sense, destroying themselves or heaping evil upon themselves by, by not pursuing the God of Israel. So it's not necessarily just God judging them and giving them evil, but he's giving them over to their own desires, which in part is multiplying evil towards themselves. And that's what sometimes we forget about when we're not pursuing God or when we're actively in rebellion against him. Not only are we running away from God, but we're multiplying harm upon ourselves. And when societies do that, it can exponentially happen fast. And so later on in the book of Jonah in chapter four, verse 11, Nineveh is described as by God as saying, this is a city with more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand. That's, that's what they found themselves in. They just don't even know because they're, they haven't seen the goodness of God. Nineveh is called a great city repeatedly, which means it was large and influential with a big military presence. Obviously not great in the moral sense, but great in the influential sense. And it's very similar to its rival city, Babylon, which you learn a lot about as the Bible story goes on. And yet in in chapter three, uh, Nineveh is also, it says in, in chapter three, Nineveh is also called an exceedingly great city meaning that it wasn't just a great city in terms of influence, but it actually was an important city. An important city to who? To traders, to merchants, to who? Who are we talking about a great city to? It's a great city to God. It's an important city to the God of Israel. What we're gonna learn about Jonah is that he did not think Nineveh deserved God's presence but God thought they deserved God's presence. And it's an exceedingly great city, an important city to God. And I don't think it's an accident that Nineveh is not mentioned as much in the New Testament as its rival city Babylon is. And it's in part because of what Jonah is able to do in this story, that it's not in the book of Revelation in the New Testament that that the Roman Empire is compared to Nineveh, the Roman Empire is actually compared to Babylon later, in part because you see God's grace very effective later in this book through a reluctant prophet. And so God calls out to Nineveh through Jonah to bring obedience so that they wouldn't destroy themselves any longer, so that their evil will not multiply upon themselves anymore. It's a call of compassion and grace and mercy, an expression of God bringing to Nineveh his goodness for the first time. And we get to see an amazing story of of their repentance. So now for the last point, which is the briefer of the points, but it's the one that's gonna lead us into a place of connection for our lives and for the next few Sundays. Jonah, the one from whom this book is named. You know, sometimes Bible books are just, you wonder today if they, if they, would, if they were given titles, how they would be retitled. Because sometimes these books are given names just by the name of the person. And so we think about that person. But like I said earlier, Jonah is not the hero of this story. Quite the contrary. Jonah is a flawed character. This is not a book about Jonah's prophecy. You see, most of the Old Testament prophets are books about a prophet who is giving words of prophecy 
about the nations or about Israel. So Isaiah, it's the words of Isaiah the prophet, and the whole book is about what God speaks through him. Jonah is the outlier. Jonah is not a book about Jonah's words. Jonah is a book about the prophet himself. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a book for Jonah himself. The word of the Lord came to speak to the prophet, came to Jonah, not to speak through the prophet, to speak to Jonah. And what do we know about Jonah from the Bible, even outside of the book of Jonah? We only know one thing about Jonah prior to the book of Jonah. It's in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 27. And I'll just summarize it for you this way. There was a king in Israel named Jeroboam II. And he's described as an evil and wicked king who did not follow the ways of the Lord. And And Jeroboam had a a political plan to expand the borders of Israel so that Israel's influence could self-sustain and be selfishly kind of brought in to, to Israel's nationalistic purposes. And Jonah the prophet is asked to give words to Jeroboam about what he thinks about this. And you know what Jonah thinks of Jeroboam's plan? Two thumbs up. Go for it, Jeroboam. Whatever you think is best, I am on your side. You're not going to hear a word of pushback from me from the, from the word of the Lord. You're going to hear nothing but positivity about your evil and wicked plans, as it's described. This is in contrast to other prophets who came later and spoke on the opposite side about what Jeroboam II was doing. So Jonah has revealed himself even before this book as a prophet who was not obedient to the will of God, as a prophet who had the nationalistic plans of Israel above God's call on their life. He was not willing, or at least very hesitant, to call out Israel's injustices and unfaithfulness. And so it's in that context that in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the first word that God said to Jonah was, Arise, wake up, sit up, stand up, do anything other than what you're doing currently. Because it's almost like Jonah was, had found himself in a place of deep comfort in his prophetic role. He wasn't actually being a bold, courageous witness for God. He just was kind of comfortable as a role of a prophet who was affirming the kings that are around him. God tells him to arise and he tells him to go. You know, later, we, just a couple of verses later, you know, we, we see Jonah arise to begin with, but as we're going to learn next week, he's supposed to go here, and instead he goes there. So he arises just for a minute to be active enough to be disobedient. And then when he gets on the ship, he goes back to sleep. He goes right back into the slumber. And so God has to wake him up again. And again, we're going to learn about this more as it goes on. But this is the man that God calls to go to Nineveh, to do something he never asked any other Old Testament prophet to do. Do you realize that? God never asked any other Old Testament prophet to actually get up and go to a Gentile nation to preach. All the other prophets, he said, speak words to Israel about what I'm doing in the nations. And yet he finds the one prophet who seemingly was having trouble being obedient already, and he tells him to go to Nineveh. 
into Gentile pagan territory and to do the hard work. Why would he choose Jonah? Because of course he had to choose Jonah. God uses Jonah to save Nineveh in order to grow Jonah. You see, yes, God cares deeply about Nineveh, but God is so big, God is so beautiful in his goodness that he can accomplish two massive projects at the same time. Yes, God uses Jonah to save Nineveh, but what we're gonna focus on in this book is how God uses Jonah to save Nineveh in order to save and to grow Jonah himself. And may that be what he does for us as well, that God takes what is floundering maybe in our own life, picks us up, tells us to arise, tells us to go and to be obedient, to do something wonderful, like serve a meal at LifeBridge, so that he might grow our heart to be more like his, overflowing in mercy and goodness and compassion. Let me just close with this image because um, I said earlier, you know, it was pun intended, the word floundering. Um, flounder is also a fish, as you know. So that was the pun, if you missed it. Um, flounder is a fish from the flatfish species. So I guess they're fish that are flat. And they're usually found at the bottom of the ocean. And what's unusual about flounder fish is that the bottom side of the flounder is white while the top side is dark. I didn't know this until this week. And it's a part of a special adaptation called counter shading. So it makes it harder for predators to see them as it's swimming. And so flounder can also change their color to match the background. And it just got me thinking about how each of us have two sides. Jonah certainly had two sides. There's a faithfulness on the bottom, a white kind of beautiful part, like a heart that wanted to serve God, a heart that wanted to be a prophet, to be, made, to be made available. He's from Israel. He cares for God's law, I think. But on the surface is this adaptability to what's happening around him, to care more about maybe what the king would think or what Israel's intentions were than about the costly reality of following a God who is just recklessly, scandalously in love with making sure all people know about him. And I see that as part of my own life, this easy, double-sided nature to life of, I wanna serve God, but at what cost? At what call? At what point do I begin to, to swim the other direction? Struggling through life, misunderstanding, struggling to get proper footing. But the story of Jonah is about a God who brings flourishing to people like Jonah and flourishing to people like you and me to see the goodness and grace of God pursuing us even when we may not want it. And so I invite you into, into hearing this story with fresh ears in the next few weeks. I'm gonna be sharing some of this teaching with Alan and with Mike the next few weeks which I think is gonna help us see different perspectives and hear different voices as we learn from this together. And so would you join us for the journey of floundering to flourishing through the grace of God, the same God that met Jonah encounters and pursues us as well. 
Let me close us in prayer and I will prepare to sing our last song together. So God, as we come to this moment in our life and in our, in our spiritual journey, we find ourselves no doubt with a, a group of people in this room in many different places in that journey, different experiences of, of faithfulness and obedience and lacking faithfulness and being disobedient or just being curious or being confused. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would show us yourself anew. You'd show us the flourishing life that you have in store, not just for us, but also for our city. Because in the same way that you use Jonah for Nineveh, maybe you can use us for a city like Salem as well. So Lord, give us faith, help us to step boldly into this story and to courageously follow after you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.